gospel is the good news of an event in history when Christ died for our sins and rose for our justification. It's been denied and it's been defended and it's been declared. What it needs most is to be demonstrated. The best argument for Christianity is a Christian. There isn't anything distinctive much today about the average church member. I'm afraid we've lost our identity. We don't stand out from the crowd. We've lost our identity because we've lost our identification. We've been assimilated and amalgamated and homogenized and merged into the mass. There's a time for the declaration of the gospel. Paul said, I declare unto you the gospel. There's a time for the defense of the gospel. Paul said, I'm set for the defense of the gospel. There's a time for the demonstration of the gospel. Paul said, Christ liveth in me. That's the best way to demonstrate it. I, if I should ever start out selling hair tonic, which I certainly won't, I am sure that I would be asked one question, have you tried it? And if I would say no, they'd say, well, then I recommend that you try it. If I'd say that I had tried it, they'd say, well, then it doesn't work. And so I think the best advertisement of Christianity is somebody who knows from experience what it means. We have lost our identification. The word Christian is found only three times in the New Testament, and each time it's a mark of identification. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. A Christian is somebody who's identified with a person. He's a person in whom Jesus lives. There never has been but one Christian life that has been lived, and Jesus lived it. But he lives it over again. Every time somebody invites him in and says, Make yourself at home in my heart and in my life. And then Agrippa, you remember, said to Paul, uh, So you think that with a little more persuasion, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian? A Christian is identified not only with a person, but with a persuasion. He's persuaded that God is able to keep that which he has committed unto him against that day. He's persuaded that nothing can separate him from the love of God in Christ. And knowing the terror of the Lord, he persuades men. He's a persuader because he's been persuaded. And then he's identified with a persecution because the other verse says, If any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this behalf. So you're identified, if you're a Christian, with a person and a persuasion and a persecution, and to the extent that we are thus identified, only to that extent do we demonstrate what a Christian is. Now the word Christian is a noun and an adjective both. We say so-and-so is a Christian, that's a noun. We say he's a Christian man, that's an adjective. We need more adjective Christians. We need more Christian Christians who live like Christians. We're the light of the world, beloved. But if you go by church statistics, and we have as much light as the statistics would indicate, then why in the world is everything so dark? We claim to be the salt of the earth, but if there is many as the statistics would indicate, why is the country so corrupt? Because salt is a purifying agency. The trouble is there are too many candles under the bushel or under the bed, and too much of the salt has lost its savor. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation, and that power is demonstrated by the Holy Spirit. You remember Ezekiel's vision of the valley of dry bones, bones, body, breath. They're all there in that, in that vision. Somebody has said, Dr. Phillips, indeed, that the church is so prosperous that it, 
that it's fat and out of breath and so organized that it's muscle-bound. And that's a pretty good statement. Uh, Ezekiel's vision started off with all those dead bones lying around over that valley. Now, a church may have the bones of sound doctrine and organization, but, uh, and it may have the body of a big membership. But if the breath of the Spirit doesn't blow across it, it's just a congregation of corpses, because the church at Sardis had a name to be alive and was dead. A mortician can make a dead man look better than he ever looked while he was living. And an expert can doctor up a church the same way, but that doesn't make a church live. There must be a vital belief in the reality of the Holy Spirit. I heard of a boys' school some time ago where every morning before classes they were supposed to recite the Apostles' Creed and each one was given one statement of the Creed, I believe in God the Father Almighty and so on down the line. And this morning they took off and got along about halfway and the thing stopped flat. And they wondered what had happened when one boy spoke up and said, The boy who believes in the Holy Ghost is not here this morning. Well, I think I've been in some prayer meetings where whoever believed in the Holy Ghost didn't show up. No wonder so many of our services start out at 11 o'clock sharp and end at 12 o'clock dull. No wonder uh, they get dry. You ought to get a charge or a shock because we're dealing with divine electricity. I'd rather folks go out mad than, than just go out. Anything's better than nothing. I don't know how many of you ever heard old Billy Sunday preach. The crowd's getting thinner now. How many ever heard Billy Sunday preach? Well, there's some survivors here. Yeah, I see. Well, I, I hope you heard him describe the average W-E-A-K-L-Y weekly prayer meeting. Only Billy Sunday could describe it like that. It says start 15 minutes late to begin with. And nobody to play the piano. And they asked, will somebody consent to play the piano? And finally some dear lady feels moved upon to play the piano. Takes her about five minutes to get to it. Five minutes more to find out something to play. And uh, then they stand up and sing, throw out the lifeline, haven't got strength enough to put up a clothesline. And then the leader gets up and says, I'm sorry, but I didn't prepare anything. Billy said, didn't need to have said that. You could have told you hadn't prepared anything after you got started. Then they all stand and sing, days dying in the West. Said, that's not the only thing dying around in that part of the country. That's a poor demonstration of the good news, beloved, and it ought to be like that. Because we have a message to proclaim. I think the real trouble, though, is best set forth. And the 119th Psalm in the 54th verse, where the psalmist said, Thy statutes have been my song in the house of my pilgrimage. Now, don't you ever forget that. You have a sojourner there, you have statutes, and you have a song. Christians are pilgrims and strangers. They're exiles and aliens in this world. This is the house of our pilgrimage. We don't belong here. We're not citizens of earth trying to get to heaven. We're citizens of heaven trying to get through this world. And we have a song. What is it? Thy statutes. Well, whoever... Whoever thought of statutes as being songs? Now, we've been saved out of the miry clay, and our feet have been put up on the rock, and there's a new song in our mouths, even praising to our God. 
But what is the song? God's laws are our song. You don't ordinarily associate statutes and songs, but mandates and melodies both go together here, words and music, theology and doxology. God's law book is a song book. It's got music in it. And the trouble is that in our vast religious establishments today, with our vaunted statistics and our wheels within wheels and our paraphernalia and all our promotion, it seems that too often the mountain labors and brings forth a mouse. There's a lot of activity and not much reality. I've heard of an old cook in a home where everything was very elegant and the crystal and the silver were the very best, but the food was no good. And she said, the trouble around here is there's too much shuffling of the dishes for the fewness of the vittles. Now, I rather agree with that when it comes to some of our Christianity today. We have the statutes, we believe or think we do, the doctrines, but does your statutes that you believe have a song to it? Along with what you believe in your head, if you've got a song in your heart, I watched some time ago some postgraduate students in violin and cello and guitar taking postgraduate lessons from Heifetz for the uh, violin and Pablo Casals who was living then from the cello and Segovia from the classic guitar. And when this young cellist played his number, it was so good that I thought, what in the world are you doing taking postgraduate courses? You couldn't do any better than that. Nobody could. But Pablo Casals looked at him and said, You're playing the notes, but not the music. Now I hope you see what that means. He had it right, but he didn't have it right. He didn't have that thing that leaps out and grabs you when one man plays a violin. Prince Chrysler, when he played it, he'd lift you out of your seat and into the heavenlies. But you let some backwoods fiddler get a hold of it, and all you hear is horsehair scraping on catgut. <laughs> and what makes the difference is the touch of a master's hand. That's what makes the difference. Those Jewish exiles over there in Psalm 137, they were under a foreign power. They were away from Jerusalem. And uh, their captors said to them, Sing us a song of Zion. And they couldn't sing because they were out of the will of God or they wouldn't have been there to begin with. They could not sing the Lord's songs in a strange land. Too many of our Christians today are captives in Babylon, living in the world. You can't sing to the glory of God if you're out of tune in the wrong place in your Christian experience. And so today, the world is saying to the church, all right, entertain us, and Lord help us, we're trying to do it. We haven't got any business entertaining the world. The gospel was never meant to be a form of entertainment. We have no business doing that. Let the world sing its own tunes. We've got a better one. On Sunday morning when people come to church, 
And this world comes and they've seen Jesus Christ superstar and the exorcist and the omen and roots and what have you. Church looks pretty tame. And here the world is saying, sing us a song. And I've been in some churches in the last few years I could shut my eyes and think I was in a nightclub. And the Bible says we are to make melody in our hearts to the Lord. And the trouble of some of our religious music, thank God for the kind you had here this morning. I sat there, Brother uh, Greer, and when they got around to that, I ain't got long to stay here. I wrote a piece about that the other day. I was up in Buffalo, New York. I'm glad I'm not up there now. It was back in the fall. And I could look out my motel window and there was a pond here and the wild ducks would come in right on the dot of a morning, swim around a while, and I knew they were getting ready to go south. It was almost time. And you know, they've got some kind of a clock on the inside of them that tells them when it's time to go. And I looked out and I said, well, I'll be coming down that way too. I hope you have a good trip. Look for me. And then I got to thinking, brother, you haven't got long to stay here anyhow. And you haven't either. You don't know how long you're going to be here. There are all sizes of graves out in the cemetery, you know. You may be very young here this morning. I may outlive the youngest one here. But we don't have long to stay. But I get in some of these places, Lord, help us where they... Uh, they don't make melody in their hearts to the Lord. In the first place, it's not melody. It's not music. It's just an excuse for not being able to make music. This old world, uh, the, the new music of today. I remember the music of the, uh, of the teens and the twenties. I love the, I love the popular songs, the romantic songs. They were sweet and pure and wholesome then. Let me call you, sweetheart, moonlight and roses, sweetheart of Sigmachai, till we meet again. I went in, the, in a record shop the other day and said, Is, would, would it just be possible that you'd happen to have uh, a record of the old-timers? The walls were full of all this other whatever it is. They talk about the top 40. I'd sure hate to hear the bottom 40. I'm a tomcat on a back fence on a summer night can strike a better note than some of those folks. And uh, Hemingway says we're deluged with writers who can't write and actors who can't act and singers who can't sing and they're all making a million dollars a year. And that's where we are today. We, we haven't got melody. The world hasn't got it. Of course, they haven't got God's song to begin with. But we haven't got it sometimes. And then we, we, we don't sing from the heart. And we don't sing unto the Lord. Now, if you don't have those three things, you're not singing the glory of God. You may not be able to carry a tune in the bucket as far as singing is concerned, but you can have a song in your heart unto the Lord. Did you ever watch a song leader in evangelistic meetings trying to bring a song out of folks that didn't have a song? Now you talk about a struggle in futility. That's it. When they haven't got it. You see what's down in the well will come up in the bucket. But if there's nothing in the well, nothing's going to come up in the bucket. 
I was, I was up in New England years ago, and the dear young fellow there was trying to get everybody lively, you know, and he said, now we're going to sing there's power in the blood. Next, next time we're going to put in four powers. Then we're going to put in six powers. The time we got around to six pow, 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 I, I, I could have shut my eyes and thought I was listening to gun smoke. That's not singing to the glory of God. You can't do it. Old Clovis Chapel, the famous Methodist preacher, said he went to a meeting where this dear song leader was trying to get folks alive. Now shake hands with five people down this road. Shake hands with five people down here. And Clovis Chapel said, you might as well try to boil water over the picture of a glowworm. I hardly agree and even in our stiff formal churches, because you know we've swung all the way today from St. Vitus to rigor mortis. It's one or the other today. We can sing in vain, we tune our formal songs, in vain we strive to rise. Hosanna's languish on our tongues and our devotions die. But oh, what a great day it is for the church when the church gets its song back. What a great day it was when John Wesley was saved. Somebody said the Puritans hadn't been buried and the Methodists hadn't been born yet, and that was a strange time, and then John Wesley came along. But when things get to their lowest, that's when things change. I saw a sign in front of a church some time ago, the lowest ebb, E-B-B, the lowest ebb is the turn of the tide. Now you think that went over. And sometimes when things get lowest, God moves in. He did over there with the great Wesleyan revival. And John Wesley started out preaching it. Charles Wesley started out singing it. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. I'd like to know why the Baptist hymnals left out my favorite verse of that. I don't know why. Hearing me deaf, his praise ye dumb, your loosened tongues employ Ye blind, behold, your Savior come, and leap, ye lame, for joy. Did somebody get scared that some Baptist would take that literally, do you suppose? And I think the possibility is so remote that we don't need to get nervous about it. But anyhow, it's not there. And then when D.L. Moody went to Scotland, and as I say, I've just been to Moody Institute, and folks who think that's a little Bible school on the back street ought to go up there and look at it. It's nearly 100 years old now, and I think of that man without any education. Who went to England and Scotland, and the greatest preachers of his day sat at his feet, hear him preach the gospel. They'd had a church fuss over there when he went over there. They called it the disruption, and the saints weren't loving each other. But the lowest ebb was the turn of the tide, and somebody said that Moody set to music a tune that had been haunting thousands of heirs. They'd been arguing, arguing, and Moody brought the music. I don't mean he could sing, but Ira D. Sankey could sing. And with that little organ, he brought the gospel in song and brought it back to America, and what had been cold theology became warm doxology. Well, what made the difference? Well, it's what the Scotsman meant when he said it's easier felt than tell. And L.P. Jacks called it the lost radiance of the Christian faith. It's the joy of salvation that David lost. 
and it's the first love that Ephesus had left. And without it, you have art, but you don't have heart. I've just been out in this Texas, the state of Texas, the Baptists out there putting on a tremendous movement. And in their leaflet, they had this, and I'm glad they had it. Not only do Texas Baptists need to preach the gospel to Texas, the gospel needs to be preached to Texas Baptists. I'm surprised at how many people belong to Baptist churches today and still don't believe anything much. The greatest mission field in the world I know anything about is the membership of the average church. They've got a name. Sardis, the church at Sardis, was just play-acting, and the more they seemed to be what they were not, the smaller chance they had of becoming what they ought to be. It takes a lot of hard work to keep up a name to be alive when you haven't got it. Pharisees, that was their trouble. They wouldn't even eat an egg. It had been laid on the Sabbath. They were so separated. They went to church, read the Bible, prayed in public. Every one of them a tither, led others into their faith, and went to hell. All of them. And the most terrific things Jesus Christ ever said in the 23rd chapter of Matthew, you, you read it, talk about skinning them alive. He never talked that way to poor low sinners. He never talked that way to the humble-hearted who were willing to listen. But these religious people who had everything, they'd heard it all, had a name, and that's all. The church at Laodicea, Jesus said he'd rather a church be cold than warm. Did you know Jesus prefers a cold church to a warm church? I would thou wert cold or boiling, but because you're just lukewarm, I'm about to spew you out of my mouth. Donald Gray Barnhouse used to say the trouble about being lukewarm is if you're cold, you might get cold enough to hunt a fire. But if you're lukewarm, you're so comfortable that you're just uh, inoculated against your real need. And that is absolutely the truth. When we are lukewarm Christians, we're comfortable. And there's no sense of desperate need. What our forefathers thought uh, they wanted to be the real thing. And what they were without knowing it, we want to know without being it. It's possible to get so busy putting on a performance that you don't have time for an experience. And that's why we need to sing, Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues. But that's just full of singing, you see. When I was 30 years old, I had lost my song. I started out, as you know, preaching when I was 12. And after the end of World War I, I got a lot of highfalutin notions in my head. And... Uh, I didn't preach for a little while like I had when I was a boy. And the Lord closed all the doors, and I didn't have anywhere to preach. 
And folks began to wonder, well, where, whatever became of the boy preacher? And I ran across a poem. I've never been able to find it since, and I'd give anything in the world if I could, but I remember two lines out of it. How sad will be the days in store when voice and vision come no more. And that scared me. I said, Lord, I'm about to lose my vision. I see it. God restored my song. He gave me a new message. Same old one had been preaching. I had to go back to the church where I'd been preaching it the other way and stay three years and preach it straight. God gave me a message and a mission and a mate, a companion, for 33 years. He gave me back my song. But then I had to learn another song three and three years and four months ago. And the companion who had traveled with me all over America went home to God. And sometimes you learn your best song in your darkest hour. When they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. There it is. At midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God. There you have it. He giveth songs in the night. Many a rapturous minstrel among the sons of light will say of his sweetest music, I learned it in the night. And many a rolling anthem that fills the Father's throne sobbed at its first rehearsal in the shroud of a darkened room. But out of this, God gave me a new note and a new message. And I've been a comforter of the brokenhearted and a chaplain to the lonely. I went out to the great Travis Avenue Church in Fort Worth. The uh, single adults had a conference out there. And they said, talk to us about loneliness. Talk to us about loneliness. Do you know there are more lonely people today than have ever lived? We've got more amusement, more entertainment than we've ever had. We've got more miserable people and more lonesome people. They said, tell us about it. Well, I said, I think I'm qualified because I've been along that road lately. But you've got to be along that road to know. And oh, I wrote that little book as though I walked through the valley, and I've never had such a response as still am. Almost every day of my life I get a letter or a call from somebody in trouble, bereavement. If you're going out to try to help folks, do, don't jump on them. I tell the preachers, I told eight or 10,000 preachers over there in Fort Worth two weeks ago and this other crowd in Chicago. I said, you going out to preach? Don't stomp on them. Jesus Christ didn't come to the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Bless God, he didn't come down here to rub it in. He came to rub it out. And that's what he did with his blood. Let them know that. How do you get that song? Second Chronicles 29, 27 says, When the burnt offering began, the song of the Lord began also. You have to make your sacrifice before you get your song. The sacrifice of penitence, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. You've got to present your person, Romans 12, present your bodies a living sacrifice. 
And then Hebrews 13, 15, the fruit of your lips giving thanks to his name. Now you can't get this many people together without folks all over this place who don't have a song. Oh, yes, you go around singing something to try to cheer yourself up maybe once in a while, but you don't have what I'm talking about. And then we've got some more. You've had it and you've lost it. Have you lost it? I tell the preachers sometimes preachers lose their song. And then they, some resign and some become resigned and some get re-signed. Let God stamp you again with his approval and then you'll have a message. And if you're an old Christian, may I say, since I'm one of you, the trouble with the older Christians, they get to where they say, well, I've had it, there's nothing more for me. There remaineth yet in no more land to be possessed. I get with preachers once in a while, thank the Lord it's not the case here. I, you know, trying to hold a meeting with a preacher is just coasting to retirement. He's had it. Nothing, not looking for anything to happen, and it won't if you don't look for it to happen. Now, I know I'm supposed to be in my rocking chair drawing my social security and reminiscing about the good old days. My prayer is, now, Lord, when I'm old and gray-headed, forsake me not until I've showed thy strength unto this generation and thy power to everyone that is to come. Thank God you can have snow on the roof and still have a fire in the furnace. And uh, don't you get uh, to hurry yourself no more for me. I watched the other night Leopold Stokowski conducting symphony orchestra at 94 and Rubenstein playing the piano at 90 and we've got a preacher up in the Blue Ridge Mountains. Guess how old he is preaching? You have to date him in advance up at 105. I'm going to have a picture taken of him one of these days. Because they'll say, now the younger preacher on there is Van Sandra. That's the only way anybody's ever going to call me young. Ah, <laughs> oh, don't, you, don't you quit till God promotes you. He's got a job for you in the next world. His servants shall serve him there. I've been working here all my life. I don't want to sit on a cloud plucking a harp all through eternity. I want to do something over there. And I want to finish my course with joy. I look forward to that. There's a book written by a preacher that I helped, a Presbyterian preacher years ago in Norbert, Pennsylvania. Now he's the pastor of the top Presbyterian church in America, Fifth Avenue in New York City. And he's written a book, and he has this title, Home Before Dark. I think that is a terrific title. I've prayed lately, and I singing there a while ago, and I thought about it. I've prayed the Lord that I might get home before dark, and this is what I mean. I grew up in the hills of western North Carolina, and when I was a little boy, one thing was understood around there, I was to be home before dark. My daddy and I had an understanding. We didn't have much dialoguing back in those days. I was supposed to be home before dark. 
Now I find myself saying these days, Lord, if it's all right with you, I'd like to get home before dark. Before I lose my faculties, I stood the other day in the presence of a great preacher that, oh, he used to be such a rugged specimen. I preached for him Chattanooga, and he went to Tremont Temple. And when I saw him with this disease that, well, he wasn't the same man. He'd go to church and cry like a baby. And I thought, Lord, if, if, if it'll please you, I'd like, to, I'd like to go before that kind of dark. And Dr. Culbertson, past president of Moody Institute, he had a poem that went like this, Lord, when thou seest that my work is done, let me not linger on with failing powers, a workless worker in a world of work. And then I pray that God will keep me from making any blunder the last part of the way. That you're, you're saved, friend, but you're never safe till you get home, as far as your testimony is concerned. And you know you can make one big blunder the last mile of the way, and they'll remember that and forget every blessed thing you did back up the road. And they'll say, yes, but Anthony Eden died the other day. My father, Churchill in England, what a brilliant man he was. But he made a mistake about Suez, and now everybody says, too bad about Suez. They forget everything else. And I said, Lord, don't let that happen. And then the, I want to get home before this old world turns dark, and friend, the lights are going out. Abide with me, fast falls the eventide. The darkness deepens, Lord, with me abide. I live in Greensboro, and that was the hometown of O. Henry, the short story writer. The last thing he ever said was, I don't want to go home in the dark. I don't know what he meant, but I know one thing. It's getting dark in this whole world. I mentioned my father when I started out preaching as a boy. He had to go with me at first. I was quite young. And then when I could go alone, he'd meet me always. I think I've told you, but I want to add a thing. At the little railroad station in Newton, North Carolina, I'd get off the train. He was standing over there by that little old Ford Roadster with that old blue serge suit on. Never had been pressed since the day he bought it. And I'd walk up to him. And the first thing he'd ask me would be, how'd you get along? It's been a long time. One of these days I expect to wind up in the Grand Central Station in glory. And I expect to see him there, not in the old blue serge suit, but in the robes of glory, and wouldn't be a bit surprised. The first thing he'd say would be, how'd you get along? I'm going to say pretty well, and I owe a lot of it to you. And then I think I'll say, Dad, you remember when I was a boy? I was supposed to be home before dark. And by the grace of God, here I am. And it's not dark. I want you to get home before dark. And the best way to be sure, that's be sure you're saved. You've trusted Jesus. And if you've lost your song as a Christian, and you're trying to make out and stiff up or lip and act like nothing had happened, and your wife may know you don't have what you had as a Christian. Neighbors may know it. 
Everybody knows it but you. Are you willing to say this morning, Lord, I want my song back? It may call for tears of repentance, but it's worth it, whatever it takes. And when you're given opportunity, and nothing would suit me more than to know that every blessed soul in this place this morning, those that have heard otherwise, made sure that they get home before God. God bless you.